I'm Delincey Parham. And I'm Abbas Mutakim. And this is Tales of the Town, a podcast about Black Oakland. Oh, look at this run. What a run. Marshawn Lynch. Still on his feet. Has blockers now. He's dancing his way for the touchdown. By the tight end, foul. And that's intercepted and picked off by Peters. What a pass inside to Hayward. What a pass by Jason Kidd. Lillard, long range three. And it's good! At the buzzer! Damian Lillard! Are you kidding me? Oakland, California has been home to some of the most iconic moments, teams, and athletes in professional sports history. We had the Oakland Raiders, whose commitment to excellence slogan earned them three Super Bowl titles, the We Believe Warriors, whose 2007 playoff run took not only the Bay Area, but the NBA world by storm, and laid the foundation for their electrifying 2015, 2017, and 2018 championship wins, the A's, who won the 1989 World Series, following the devastating Loma Prieta earthquake and the 2000 NBA All-Star Game where Vince Carter put damn near his whole arm in the net. The historical teams and moments run deep. Let's not forget about the talent that the town has produced. A three, a one-nothing deficit. Ricky goes, a pitch taken. He's going to have it. He does. Ricky Henderson, no contest. Steals third base, jerks the bag from its moorings and holds it aloft, representing number 939. Oakland is home to the likes of NBA legends Bill Russell and Jason Kidd, NFL ballers Marshawn Lynch, Josh Johnson, and Marcus Peters, baseball greats Ricky Henderson and Dontrell Willis, and the list goes on. Whether it be the town's franchises or its players, Oakland has found a way to stake its claim in the relevancy of the sports world. And with all that rich history that has been accumulated here in Oakland over the decades, it makes sense why fans from here are so passionate about both their teams and homegrown players. Oakland sports fans are hilarious. We're loyal, we're crazy, we're, um, yeah, I just think we're loyal. I mean, that's the that's main word for it, loyal. They're, they're going to go and sell out, they're going to go have a good time, and in the parking lot, they're going to wear the gear and support the players, doesn't matter what the record is. That's Jazz. She's an Oakland native, diehard Raiders and Warriors fan, and her family owns a local bar, Halftime. If there's anyone who's seen Oakland sports fans at their highest and lowest moments, it's her. Take the 2015 championship parade, for example, a day Jazz remembers very clearly. The first parade was amazing. I remember all the bartenders begging, like, can we get it off? We worked every single game all the playoff games, you know, all the teams besides just the Warriors. So we've worked every single game. You know, we've never had a parade out here that we've been able to go to with any of the teams. It had been 26 years since the city of Oakland had seen one of its professional franchises win it all. Before the Warriors' 2015 NBA Finals win, the town's last championship came in 1989 when the A's swept the Giants in the World Series. For Jazz and her co-workers, this was possibly a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that they just couldn't miss. And my dad was like, no, we got to open up early because people are going, we were like, dude, we worked the whole playoffs. We're going to go and, and enjoy the parade. So Jazz and her co-workers made their way to Lake Merritt to join the rest of the Warrior faithful as they flooded the streets of Oakland. But after partying for a while, Jazz began to get calls from her father 
urging her to get back to the bar. My dad was calling back to back to back, like, you guys, it's a line outside. Come on, come on. So I'm like, all right, y'all, let's go. Um, I'm going to stop by the bar, go to the bathroom. We can go get something to eat, and then we'll open up. And so we're walking to the bar, and I get to the bar, and the bar is packed. Like, beyond a Friday or Saturday night pack. Like, it's sardines. And I'm like, what the hell? And I walk in there, and my dad is behind the bar, and he had then pulled two loyal customers from the crowd to help him pour beer and pour drinks. <laughs> I'm like, why, why are you open right now? And he was just like, they were knocking at the door. They were lined up. They said they don't care what I'm pouring, what I make them. That, that. I'm like, oh, my God. The scene at halftime was beyond anything Jazz could have imagined. She knew Warrior fans were ready to celebrate their team, but she had no clue they'd show up like this. So we immediately just got to work, and it was like a 16-hour day. Like, we closed after 2 a.m. at night, and it was just so much fun. The energy was so good. Everybody wanted to play music and, and dance on tables, and it was just like the one night we let everybody wild out. That 2015 parade will be the first of three over the next four years, with the fans bringing the energy for their team every single time. And although it had been over two decades since the professional team from Oakland had won a championship, the history of winning here is not something we can overlook. The 70s and 80s sent a flurry of trophies to the town. Like we mentioned earlier, in addition to the A's 89 World Series win, they also had a three-peat, winning in 72, 73, and 74. And the Raiders, they hoisted the Super Bowl trophy in 77, 81. And when they were the L.A. Raiders, they won again in 84. And when they came back to the town, they could have possibly won another in 2002 if it weren't for the infamous tuck rule play. If you're a Raider or New England Patriots fan, you know the play I'm referring to. And for those that aren't, let us give you a brief overview of Raiders history. The Raiders lead the Patriots 13 to 10. Fourth down, that'll bring Ken Walter in the punting unit. In 2002, the Raiders and the Patriots went head-to-head in a divisional playoff game. On a freezing Saturday night in New England with the field covered in snow, the game was coming down to the wire. In the final minutes of the fourth quarter, with the Raiders winning 13-10, their Hall of Fame defensive back Charles Woodson sacked then-Patriots quarterback Tom Brady, knocking the ball loose and causing what seemed to be a fumble. Blitz. Lost the football. It's on the ground. Covered by the Raiders. His college teammate, Charles Woodson, on the blitz. But after a replay and further deliberation between referees, the call was overturned and ruled an incomplete pass. Raiders fans across the country questioned the validity of the call, but the NFL rulebook states that if an offensive player is holding the ball to pass it forward, hence quarterback Tom Brady, any movement is considered a pass attempt, even if the player is tucking the ball into their body. So a rule that many players and fans hadn't heard of before that night became an everlasting memory in the minds and spirits of Raider fans. The tuck rule gave the Patriots possession of the ball, which led to them tying the game and eventually kicking the game-winning field goal in overtime and ultimately going on to win the Super Bowl a few weeks later. The Patriots win it 16-13 in overtime. But despite the unfortunate luck against the Patriots, Raider Nation quickly bounced back. The following season, they won their conference and found themselves in the Super Bowl against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and their former racist head coach, John Gruden. But once again, 
the Raiders would come up short. They would end up losing to the Buccaneers 48-21. While they haven't won a championship since 1984, the early 2000s saw the Raiders putting together some of the better teams in the NFL. And who knows what would have happened if it weren't for the tuck rule or having to play their former head coach, who Raiders fans will always point out knew all their offensive schemes. They could have quite possibly won back-to-back in 2002 and 2003, sparking a dynasty. Nevertheless, they gave Oakland fans something to be proud of and followed in the tradition of competitive teams coming out the town. And so, yes, that 2015 championship Warriors team brought the town its first in decades. But as you can see, winning in sports wasn't foreign to Oakland fans. It's not like the A's had gone a century without winning the World Series like the Cubs. And the Raiders weren't like the Eagles in Philly, who at the time had never won a Super Bowl. The town's teams just had a few years of struggle. So those dominant years for the Warriors did two things. They reminded the town of its rich winning history. And to the broader outside sports world, it made us the center of attention again. But no matter how good or bad an Oakland sports team has been, to some Oakland sports fans, the teams have always been relevant. Logan Murdoch, who's a sports journalist from Oakland, recalls one of his favorite memories of the Raiders as a kid. But I went to the AFC Championship game in 2003, and it was just a surreal moment because it was, especially both in hindsight and in the moment, because it was the last time the Raiders were great in Oakland. And my team got to go to the Super Bowl. And this was before, you know, gentrification, before Oakland was really changed for, you know, for good. And this was like the last, like, true representation of the, of the town, you know. That was a big honor, especially in hindsight, to be able to go to something like that. And I'm really appreciative that I had the opportunity to do that. Logan loves everything sports related to the town. And although his teenage and early adult years haven't seen the Raiders winning much, he remembers those dominant years from his childhood, especially the year they went to the Super Bowl in 2003. He recalls going to a playoff game that season. You know, now it was just a wild moment in time to think about where the Bay was and obviously by extension where the Oakland was at that time. It was a surreal experience, and I'll never forget that. I'll never forget being freezing out in the cold. Uh, I think we were living in Richmond at the time and taking the BART all the way from Richmond to the Coliseum and how cold it was. It was really cold that night. It was a great, great night, and I'll, I'll you know think about that forever. That divisional playoff game will be the first time Logan got to witness a team from his hometown participate in one of sports' biggest moments. But it wouldn't be the last. Following in the footsteps of his mother, he became a sports reporter, and after a few years of interning and working for local papers and radio stations, he got a shot at covering the Warriors for NBC. And it would be through his covering of the Warriors that Logan would bear witness to some of the greatest teams in NBA history. What's good? This is Logan Murdoch here at Oracle Arena, ahead of game two between the Warriors and the Spurs. The biggest thing that the Warriors want to do is fight human nature. They had a really good game on Saturday afternoon, defensively holding the Spurs to 40% from the field with defensive performances from JaVale McGee, Clay Thompson, and Andre Iguodala. If they want to go up in this series 2-0, they're going to have to fight complacency and get a victory tonight. The time span of 2015 to 2019 the Warriors won three out of four NBA championships, including back-to-back in 2017 and 2018. And that'll- 
will do it. It's over. The Golden State Warriors return to a familiar place. They're on top of the NBA world. The fourth title in eight years. The Dubs dynasty is still very much alive. A time when Oracle Stadium donned the nickname Roracle for how loud the Oakland fans got. I remember uh, it was 2013. It was Steph Curry's first postseason against the Nuggets. And he went on a run. I think I forget the game it was, but he went on a run uh, for like 20 some points in a row. And the crowd was, it was like, it was ridiculous. I couldn't even hear myself think. Over to Steph Curry. Another three. A certain roar when Steph Curry gets a three. There's a Steph roar. Steph Curry. And I think that's where, you know, uh, at least my iteration of Oracle came out because it, it started when Baron Davis dunked over Karolinko. But my iteration when I was around the Warriors was when Steph used to get that uh, that applause. And you know, to see guys like Kevin Durant and uh, Clay Thompson and Draymond play at the peak of their power, it was, again, an honor. Sports culture in the Bay has always been deeper than just the games. These events create the space for locals to come together and bond through their collective love for the team and their players. With the population of the town shifting as a result of gentrification, Logan saw firsthand how the decrease in the working class black population was reflected in the makeup of the crowd and ultimately impacted the entire arena experience. You saw that, you know, local folks getting priced out and it kind of got a lot of techie and a, and, a, and a new generation of people kind of came through. So you kind of saw that in the stand. The impact that gentrification has had on Oakland sports culture as a whole cannot be overstated. But even though much of the focus has been on how gentrification changed the makeup of fans at the professional level, the impact gentrification has had on the youth level may be even more of a travesty. Josh Johnson, who is an NFL quarterback and is from West Oakland, spoke to what his experience was like playing sports as a kid in the town and how it's different from today. Josh who is a product of the Oakland Athletic League, shared how he's seen gentrification ravage high school and youth sports. Everybody knew everybody. Like, that's really how it started. You know, the community aspect started was on the was on the Pop Warner level because we all got to see each other so much. Well, you know, after the games, if you play junior peewees, you waiting, you staying up there to the midget, so you running around, playing hella throw-it-up tackle, eating hella fish and fries. So all that to me, like now that I'm older, that was really just creating that community for us. Like right after our game, we were funk, but we all finna keep playing with each other. So that's how it was up, bro. It was going down. It was hella fun too. The conditions of building that sense of community that Josh is referring to are lessening with each passing season. Institutions like youth football leagues fall victim to declining numbers in the black population. And as a result, you see not only the number of players decreasing, but the community as a whole that sports culture has produced is impacted. Josh remembers how youth football connected him to not just kids in Oakland, but all over the East Bay. You get older, like, you start seeing so many familiar faces, and, like, my kids be like, why you know everybody? I be like, well, hell, most of them is through sports. That's really the origination of it, is through sports, and then we just build long-lasting relationships off of that, bro. So, like, I think that was hella major. Like, that was hella key. For like us, like I didn't realize how much I was being tapped in with Richmond and Berkeley by playing with the Cougars, you feel me? Because we had so many people from Berkeley, the town, Richmond, all over there. But like as you got older, 
some people that really ain't never been to the rich if they don't really know nobody. So you start, that's when I started making the connections when I got older. I'm like, man, football, that little going up to San Pablo Park, Gold Street, you feel me? East East Campus, like that little trip on the 15 really tapped me into a whole nother network. And I was doing that on my own too, because moms was working and stuff. So, you know, at that time we would just catch the bus to practice. Family, friends, and fun, that's what youth sports culture in Oakland was all about. And not only did the town create culture and community through institutions like Pop Warner Football, they created a bunch of talented athletes in the process. During Josh's interview, we also got to address how Oakland has always been a hotbed for premier high school talent, especially when Josh was playing at Oakland Tech. Marshawn, Marshawn and Phil at that time was, Marshawn was the number two running back in the nation. Phil was like the number corner in the nation, number nine corner in the nation. You had Petty, you feel me? Petty was a leader in restaurant in the Bay Area. Kenny O'Neill at that time was number number one in the nation in the 100, 200. Skyline had like the best four by one team. Tech girls, we won two back-to-back states. You feel me? We just had Leon. You had from from Leon, Allende, t uh, Time was just out here. You feel me? Tremaine was at Skyline, Ike and all them. Alexis and Devin A, bro, they was two two of the best girls in the nation. So when you really understand, all this was going on, bro, while I'm in high school, bro. Like, this all happened at the same time. The folks that Josh named will go on to be amazing college athletes. And players like Marshawn Lynch will leave their impact on the professional level. Marshawn Lynch! Still on his feet! Now he's dancing his way for the touchdown. Oakland housing all this high school talent would create an atmosphere in the town that Josh says even professional teams haven't been able to conjure. He says those early days playing in the Oakland Athletic League prepared him for the NFL environment because nothing could match the energy of the fans at McClyman's or Castlemont High School. It prepared you so much for like college in the league because. The hardest place in the world to go play is going to play at Mac when everybody knows it's going to be the two number one teams in the in the town playing. Because, bruh, it didn't matter if you was a, a corporate worker, if you was a dope boy, it didn't matter if you was just a square. Everybody was at the sports game. Like, that was the thing to do. That was the club. You feel me? And as kids, it made us better because you know you had to show up and show out. You feel me? And I enjoyed that shit. I remember going to many of those games as a kid. And to hear Josh paint the picture gives me both deja vu and a sense of sadness. That was such a brief moment in time, but the impact it had on the town is one that's everlasting. To know that that culture and those moments are slowly dwindling away with each new high rise, with each black family that relocates, it's a painful reality. You hear Josh talk about playing against McClyman's High School, better known as Mac and the atmosphere there being one comparable to NFL stadiums. A quick glance at Mac's decorative history across all sports will help make that comparison make sense. All-American talent, state championships, league championships, and sending players to both the NFL and NBA. That type of legacy creates a culture that everyone in their community wants to rally behind. And what's even more surreal is that Mac's recent success has been against seemingly insurmountable odds. 
low enrollment numbers as a result of gentrification and toxins found in the water has folks in the town less concerned about Mac sports programs, but instead wondering if Mac is on the brink of closing for good. So now, let us put you on this. Put me on some. Put me on some. In the winter of 2020, Oakland Unified School District temporarily shut down McClyman's High School after TCE, an airborne toxin, was found in the campus's groundwater. And this wasn't the first time the Mac community dealt with health hazards via contamination. In 2008 and in 2017, high levels of lead were also found in the water. Back here in the Bay Area, there's a problem with the water at an Oakland high school. Officials found unsafe levels of lead. KPIX 5's Jackie Ward on the next steps from the district. The problem was brought to the school district's attention when the football coach started going across the street to his mom's house in order to make sure that his players had fresh water. OUSD says they're now taking the necessary steps to solve this problem. The Oakland Unified School District says unsafe amounts of So one might wonder how a school that has brought OUSD so much fame and recognition via its sports programs could be faced with such harsh environmental and public health issues. But when you understand the history of the neighborhood that Mac resides in, it makes complete sense. McClyman's is in the ghost town area of West Oakland, a neighborhood with an immense amount of black history. It's been a place where black folks who are living check to check and working multiple jobs have called home. It was home to the black working class and the poor alike. That is, until we saw the black population in Oakland start to decrease as a result of gentrification, which in turn, resulted in the remaining black population of West Oakland being met with nothing but negligence. The conditions at McClyman's High School are a perfect example of this. Lack of renovations for a school that as of 2021 was 95% minority enrolled with the majority of the students being black allows the pipes to deteriorate and leads to lead in the water. A highly dense black population caused the city to sweep under the rug any environmental and public health issues. Couple this with rising rent prices in neighborhoods surrounding the school, you get black families relocating, dropping the black population of West Oakland by 25% in the last 10 years, which of course impacts the school's enrollment rate. All of these factors are how we get the current conditions at the only public high school in West Oakland. Temporary closings, students getting sick, a few even dying. This is all due to environmental racism and has at times left West Oakland without a public high school. This would have never happened in an affluent area like Piedmont or Montclair. The safety of the students in broader community would never experience such negligence from its district officials and local government. And so the future of MAC seems to be uncertain. As we mentioned earlier, the school closes doors in February of 2020 for TCE, and then again in April of 2020 because of COVID-19. This caused the graduation rate to drop from 97% to 89%. With all of this happening, there's concerns that the school might close for good, forcing its current 359 students to enroll elsewhere, potentially ending over 100 years of West Oakland High School sports history. Now let's get back to the story. 
Even with the recent geographical and demographic changes in the town, the athletes that remain have been able to keep the mentality of Oaklanders alive and strong. Known for our toughness, grit, and dog mentality that players like Dane Lillard and Marcus Peters exhibit. And Marcus Peters is a player now. Uh, he is a dog. He can play. Alicia Lee Lee Davis, who was a former collegiate basketball player and now the coach of Tex Girls basketball team, describes what being a dog is and how Oakland creates that in his players. And it ain't all about winning. It's just about not quitting. Like where we come from, we don't take L's. You feel me? You just learn and you get better. That's all you really can do. So being a dog, it just lets you know, like, I'm always going to get up and give everything that I got. And if I lose, I'm going to get back up. If I win, I'm going to keep going. So being a dog, honestly, is just like you're not willing to just be a sucker. You're not a coward. And I think a lot of times people are scary. And so being from Oakland and having a dog, it teaches you not to be scared, but also teaches you that there's always somebody better than you. You feel me? Like, so you always got to keep working and working and working no matter what. That's what being a dog means to me. It was this mentality that led to Alicia's success as a college athlete, allowing her to join the lineage of elite sports talent to come from the town. And that is not something that she took lightly. Playing basketball, just being from Oakland, you just kind of have a pride thing, you know? Like, I feel like being from Oakland, I'm very, very prideful. And so it's allowed me to know, like, I'm representing somebody, like, bigger than myself. Like, I have a purpose bigger than myself. So, so yeah, I would say growing up, knowing that people who come from Oakland, you when you raw, you raw. So I knew if I was going to have that, that, that on my back that I had to represent, and I believe I fully did that at Arizona State. So much of the discourse around Oakland sports being impacted by gentrification has been centered around pricing out fans, and rightfully so. But as you can see, it's so much deeper than that. We're watching the loss of culture and community happen right before our eyes, from professional tailgates to youth football games. And the upcoming years seem to be promising more of the same. The A's baseball team says its future in Oakland hinges on a big decision by the Alameda County Board of Supervisors, and that decision could happen any minute now. Supervisors are scheduled to take up a resolution that would help pay for some of the costs associated with building the Howard Terminal Project. Several county supervisors say they're on the fence about diverting future tax revenue to a new ballpark project instead of spending that money on essential services and health care. But Mayor Libby Schaff pointed out the projected tax revenue, which could be in the hundreds of millions of dollars, will not exist if the Howard Terminal Project does not break ground. In 2019, the Warriors moved across the bay to San Francisco. 2020 saw the Raiders leave to Las Vegas and build a brand new billion dollar stadium. And currently, the A's are looking to build their new ballpark at the Port of Oakland. The A's lobbying for a new stadium has been at the center of development efforts by the wealthy in Oakland. A guise for attraction and opportunity, some see it exactly for what it is, an effort of gentrification, displacement, and making the rich richer. My Uncle Clarence, who we heard from in episode one, is a member of the ILWU, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. The Bay Area's local chapter is the ILWU-10, and they, along with other community organizers, have been fighting for the last few years to stop the A's from acquiring the land at the port. A fight against this corporate expansion and anti-Black displacement is not uncharted water for the ILWU. In fact, they have a history of resistance dating back to nearly 100 years ago. On July 5th, uh, 1934, there was 
two maritime workers were, were killed by the police. What was happening is that all the docks on the West Coast were shut down. We are asking for a general strike. We are not only asking for it, but we're going to get it. And so the employers were, were trying to do all they possibly could, you know, to use scabs and to open up the piers, you know, so they could work. So there were, you know, these pitched battles between the police and the longshore workers. Open warfare rages through the streets of the city as 3,000 Union pickets battle 700 police. Guns, tear gas, clubs and fists bring injuries to more than 80 persons and cause the death of two. This killing of two maritime workers led to an intense battle between the pigs and longshoremen. The longshoremen used whatever tactics they could to resist oppression. They give you some idea of what was happening. You know, the police would be on horseback. You know, longshoremen would throw marbles on the ground so that the horses would lose their balance. They would do such thing as, you know, use bats and other sticks to hit the horses in their private areas so that the police would fall off their horses. You know, the use of tear gas was employed against the workers. Before that, it would only have been employed in the military. Uh, the longshoremen were going up against the um, police department, the National Guard, and also reactionary organizations like the Ku Klux Klan. The longshoremen were met with this stayback repression simply because they chose to align their efforts with the people and take a stand against police violence. Thousands of people took to the streets for a, um, a march. And then uh, what immediately followed after that was a four-day general strike in San Francisco, which paralyzed the entire city. That was a very historic moment. When I say union, you say fight! Union! Fight. Union! Fight. When I say people, you say fight! People! Fight. People! Whether it's 1934 or 2020, the Longshoremen and Warehouse Union found a way to rally behind the people. So we, we're going to start introducing speakers. We're going to have some speakers here. In 2020, following the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, the ILWU shut down all 29 ports on the West Coast and Vancouver for eight hours to demand an end to police terror and racism. Brother Clarence Thomas, the real Clarence Thomas. Are you ready to fight? I can't hear. And I know there may be some enemies in the audience. Because anywhere people's struggles are, they're there too. I want to say one thing. We are all here today for one reason. The boldest, blackest, radical trade unionist in the United States of America, ILWU Local 10, ILWU Local 34. Brother Trent Willis came up with the idea of the Million Worker March, this T-shirt that I'm wearing. Brother Keith Shanklin was a part of that leadership. we got to be very clear about something, brothers and sisters. Our objectives and goals are not the same as the political class. There's a movement to make the port privatized for hotels, baseball stadiums, and retail. We have to stop that. The Oakland A's have to stay in East Oakland, not at the port. Not at the port. 
That demonstration in June of 2020 not only called for an end to physical state-backed violence and systemic oppression, but it also called for the end of the attempt to privatize the port so that the A's could build a new stadium. A development effort that the ILWU believes will be a dagger in the heart of the black, brown, and poor communities that remain in Oakland. John Fisher, who owns the Oakland A's, he wants to build 3,000 uh, high-end condominiums at Howard Terminal. He wants to build a 400-room hotel, 1.5 million square feet of um, retail space, and um, a 35,000-seat baseball stadium. Fisher, Libby Schaff, and others have framed the new A Stadium as an opportunity to bring jobs to the community of West Oakland, to keep the A's in the town, and to bring more affordable housing to the Jack London area that is on the outskirts of West Oakland. Well, listen, if there's anybody who thinks that those condos are going to be going to people who live in West Oakland who, who are working class, you got another thing coming. It's not. Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff has positioned herself both in support of the ILWU and the community of Oakland, as well as Jeff Fisher. She has said that if the A's want to build the new stadium, it would not be financed by the city. But that stance has changed with her plans to put taxpayer dollars into the project. I get a notice that Mayor Libby Schaff has her staff to put a, a billion and a half of our tax dollars into building a gondola over train tracks at Jack London Square to serve as luxury condos and um, stadium that Fisher is planning to build on port property. And she did this after swearing that Fisher's project was going to be totally privately financed. Now, we're in the middle of an unprecedented homelessness, a pandemic, and a looming depression, but yet a right-wing, anti-black, billionaire is getting all of this support from Libby Schaaf and from certain Democratic politicians, namely State Senator Nancy Skinner and um, Assemblyman Ron Bonta. Fisher, Schaaf, and others have advertised a potential new stadium as a step into the future for the A's in the surrounding city of Oakland. But my uncle Clarence, the IOWU, and others who oppose this building and the development of the port are aware of the real ramifications, which are deindustrialization, public health risk, and gentrification. The first thing people need to understand is that there are certain laws on the books right now that prevent housing from being developed in industrial sectors or industrial areas. And there's a reason for that, one of which has to do with the issue of pollution. Now, Howard Terminal is um, a, a site that has been used for maritime industrial purposes for 125 years. So we don't know how much pollution is at that site. But more importantly than that, the Port of Oakland is the third busiest port on the West Coast. It's the economic engine for not only the Bay Area, but for all of Northern California. It's responsible for some 84,000 jobs in the Northern California region. And not only that, but it is the place where predominantly African-Americans work. And so the Fisher family wants to do this development at that particular site. That's like building 
uh, an amusement park on an assembly line. So the building of this stadium at the Port of Oakland will not only add pollution and continue to gentrify West Oakland, it might keep many workers on the port out of jobs. And fewer jobs available for Black folks in the city of Oakland means less people can afford to stay here. That's how gentrification works. This is not about a, just a baseball park. This is about a, a multi-billion dollar development in the city of Oakland. It's going to enhance and benefit a very few Oakland residents. It's going to benefit those people with money who, who want to be able to have waterfront properties. This is uh, what the ruling class wants. And so if this should happen, Oakland is going to be changed in ways that are just unimaginable. And it's going to impact, you know, everything in the city. Oakland will just not be the same. In the early weeks of September 2022, the Oakland A's were given permission by the Alameda County Courts to proceed with their plans to build the $1 billion stadium. What's next? The fate of Oakland residents hangs in the balance of bureaucracy and the wealthy who run the state of California in Alameda County. Only a few things stand in the way of the A's building their new stadium. The California Department of Toxic Substances Control and the will and fight of the people. To support the work of the ILWU team and the other organizations that have come together in their fight against the new stadium, visit EastOaklandStadiumAlliance.com. Next week on Tales of the Town, a deeper look at the life of Oscar Grant and what he means to Oakland. When the community here in Oakland chanted, I am Oscar Grant, it created a movement throughout this nation. That's next week on Tales of the Town. Before we end, if you haven't already, don't forget to stream the Tales of the Town album. All proceeds go towards supporting people's programs. Here's a snippet of We Made It by Prada Mac and Samaria, streaming everywhere now. Hey, hey, hey. hey. Mama show me unconditional love. Hey. You better return the conditions for thugging. Grew up on them burners and biscuits as youngest. Remember them knockout missions, we was just guppies. But you wouldn't know nothing about it. Remember days it was rainy, you gotta get wet. We in front of this shit like the Navy. When you laid on the rent money, it making sense, and you still gotta feed the babies. They counted us out. We emerged in the dirt, they hate that we made it. From the 6 to the 9 to the 8. Me and Latweet got it all out the pavement. Never stress on what we didn't have, cause we made it. Ground of solid gold, never paid enough. Never sat in patience. Work for it, can't delay it, can't be waiting. Tales of the Town is hosted and executive produced by me, Abbas Muntakim, and Delancey Parham. Our senior producer is Maya Cueva. Fact checking done by Danya Suleiman and Bashira Mack. And mixing and sound design is done by Pat Masidi Miller and Lauren Newsom. The theme song was produced by Shyan G and Carrie Lynn. Additional music in this episode is courtesy of Umami Funk and Seif EC. We want to give a special thank you to Jazz, Logan Murdoch, Josh Johnson, Lily Davis, and my uncle Clarence for being on this episode. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, give us a five-star review, and tell your friends. 
I'm not reading that again, Maya. I swear to God. Like, come on, please don't make me do that. I said it. It was really, really good. But. But what? No, there's no problem. For real? Oh my God, bro. Oh my God. You said it was a horror. Uh, I'm gonna just I'm do this do shit again. Time for safety in case like they can edit that, that out. But... All right.